Leading Ideas Talks podcast is brought to you by the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Subscribe free to our weekly e-newsletter, Leading Ideas, at churchleadership.com slash leading ideas. Leading Ideas Talks is also brought to you by Synergy, a leadership guide for church staff and volunteers. As more and more laypersons take on significant ministry roles, many of them feel ill-prepared, underappreciated, and confused about their calls. Synergy is a leadership guide that speaks directly to their needs. Learn more and order now at churchleadership.com slash books. And remember, to stay up to date with the latest church leadership strategies and information, please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos. How can your congregation function as a community of ministers rather than a community gathered around a single minister? In this episode, Lydia Buckland explains the Mutual Ministry Initiative and how this approach to shared ministry is flourishing among smaller churches in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I'm Ann Michael. I'm a senior consultant with the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. I'm also one of the editors of Leading Ideas e-newsletter, and I am pleased to be the host of this episode of Leading Ideas Talks. My guest today is Lydia Kelsey Buckland, who serves as the canon to the ordinary in the Episcopal Diocese of Northern Michigan and senior advisor to the Mutual Ministry Initiative at Virginia Theological Seminary. And I'm delighted to be talking with her today today about a more collaborative, inclusive approach to leading in faith communities. So welcome, Lydia. Thank you, Anne. So great to be here. Yes, so you serve in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is a pretty remote and sparsely populated part of our country. I wondered if you could describe the overall context and the typical uh, profile of the churches that you work with there. Sure. Our diocese in the Episcopal Church, our um, community of congregations, we have about 24 congregations. Um, And as you said, the Upper Peninsula is pretty remote. We are 3% of the population of Michigan, but we're 30% of the size. Um, And so there's a lot of forest and we're surrounded by water. Um, Our winters, it's actually snowing right outside my office right now. So winter starts in October and ends in May. Um, And so it's a rugged place to be. And um, our folks are hardy and scrappy and resilient. Um, And our churches are small, but faithful. Um, And, you know, we were just at our recent diocesan convention and someone said, well, if we've been staying steady with 12 members for 200 years, I think maybe that's okay. Like that's just our size. Like at this point, maybe we should stop feeling bad about ourselves because this is just who we are. Um, And so some of our congregations are about a dozen people. Some have, you know, 50 or 60 um, or a bit larger. And we also are doing some innovative things with uh, UP Wild Church, which meets outdoors and exploring what that might look like um, to take church outside the building. Um, but in general, we we tend to rely on the faith that God has provided us everything we need for ministry, because if we didn't, um, we probably wouldn't keep going. And so we, we really utilize the gifts of everyone. Um, and we uh, are very connected in our local communities um, because we are mostly small communities. 
Mm -hmm. So as I understand it, in uh, these smaller faith communities, um, you're relying on a program called the Mutual Ministry Initiative to help them organize uh, themselves uh, for ministry. And I wondered if you could uh, describe that initiative and that ministry model. Sure. So mutual ministry in and of itself is an ecclesiology. So it's a way of being, of understanding church. Um, it has been called in the past total ministry, baptismal ministry, ministry development, shared ministry. It has all these names. Um, and it really took hold in the 1980s and 1990s around the Episcopal Church um, as some bishops such as Wes Friendsdorf and um, Tom Ray and others um, from places like Nevada and Wyoming and Alaska, Navajo land, um, these smaller dioceses in particular, remote places, um, we're starting, we're kind of the canaries in the coal mine of saying, ooh, this idea of one clergy person per congregation um, who is paid and is sustained through just one congregation isn't sustainable anymore. Um, and so we started to experience that, you know, 30 years ago, what the rest of the church is kind of experiencing now, especially mm -hmm. post-pandemic. Um, and so at that time, they started to come together and have these um, kind of think tanks and uh, experimental ideas of how they might structure their judicatories. It was also an ecumenical movement. Um, and, and there were some partnerships formed. And um, in our particular context, we form ministry teams in local congregations who then do have the support of a seminary trained ministry professional, what we call missioners. Um, other places have called them ministry developers who walk but they're not resident within the congregation, correct? They they correct. Right. They might work with a few congregations. Mm -hmm. right. So the paid kind of clergy person, though that person doesn't have to be ordained, but typically is, um, but definitely seminary trained. That's the person who accompanies, walks along these teams of ministry. Um, and within the teams, there may be folks who are locally ordained and commissioned for ministry. Um, and so the Mutual Ministry Initiative um, is a more recent um, program that was funded by Lilly Endowment um, through Virginia Theological Seminary as an effort to give some more infrastructure kind of 30 years later um, we're now at a point again where even larger congregations and judicatories are saying, ooh, how are you doing this? How have you been able to sustain your ministry in Northern Michigan? And might there be things that we can learn from that? And so we um, worked with um, up here in Northern Michigan, I worked with the folks, Lisa Kimball and other folks in lifelong learning over at Virginia Theological Seminary to put together this grant that would help um, train and form leaders in this model of ministry that is very different than a seminary training in which someone comes out kind of being the expert in the room or the father mother knows best, um, but rather facilitates learning, facilitates shared ministry, helps people discern their gifts, um, some different skills that we didn't necessarily focus on with clergy in the past. Mm -hmm. And so on the ground in a local congregation, what does this mutual ministry team look like? Um, you know, who's part of it and what do they do? Yeah, that's such a great question. So it looks different in different places. Up here in Northern Michigan, we start with what's called a discovery process, and that looks similar to a discernment process, um, where the folks in the congregation have acknowledged and believe that they have gifts, that there are people who are ready to use those gifts kind of in a more formal um, 
a way of liturgical, a way that um, we use liturgy to um, commission and to ordain as a team those folks. Um, and so it's a formation process that um, goes a bit further than Sunday school or adult formation. Um, and through the discernment process, the discovery process, they name the gifts they see in each other. And so they might say, oh, Susan, you are a teacher at at the local university and your speaking schools are amazing in the way you talk about theology. I could see you as a preacher here. And Susan may say, who me? No. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine it. And so we spend time together in community or someone, for instance, who's a nurse or who, um, you know, does meals on wheels might have diaconal gifts. And so people might see you are a deacon amongst us. Um, and so People hear from one another in community about what those gifts are. They have an opportunity to affirm that with themselves. And then they spend about three years studying and learning and praying and being together in community, um, working with someone like me who serves as a missioner and a coach and a guide. Um, and we say, you don't have to be totally all in yet. We'll get there and we can um, continue in the discernment process. Um, and then after those three years, a real solid team, that group is called a covenant group. Um, and so I love the language there that we covenant together with each other, with the rest of the congregation, with God, um, that we're going to take this seriously, that it's going to be something we show up for, we come prepared. Um, and people find this group to be life-giving and um, it's deeply tied to their gifts and passions. So they show up for it. I think often people say, how do you get people to even agree to want to like that sounds like a big commitment everyone's so busy these days um and once people become part of this group it's so life-giving and enriching with their ministry and daily life that they don't want to miss it they get excited they might bring food to share they offer prayers for each other share a lot deeper and more vulnerably than they would just on sunday morning and so as this team evolves and matures together they do they end up taking on specific roles Yes. Okay. Yes. So for instance, one of the small communities I serve in has two people who were um, ordained as presbyters, as priests in the church. And so, um, and then some other folks who were commissioned as preachers, someone else who's commissioned as a deacon. And so when we get together, maybe quarterly for seasonal planning, and we do the scheduling, we divvy up the roles. So the nice thing about it is you have lots of people using their gifts at different points so that no one person is overburdened with having to write the sermon every single week, because we've got a team of folks. And so it might be maybe once a month. And even the person who's um, discerned as a priest in this congregation I'm in, they might, they will do it once a month. And then the lay leaders will do morning prayer once a month. And they actually ask to do morning prayer because they like to um, take turns with the different liturgy, but also to step into some leadership role and not to put everything on the shoulders of just the ordained person um, to have to get overworked. So what we find is when we share the responsibilities um, it feels more palatable and doable and more people kind of know what's going on. I would say everyone in the community is able to kind of set the table for the Eucharist or to knows what liturgical season it is. Um, and so it's even like just a higher sense of engagement with the worship service in general, with being able to figure out where we are in the lectionary. Um, we all kind of know how to do that because some weeks someone might not be able to come because of the snow. Um, and so 
we, it's just a very hands-on way of being. I, I do find um, that often people who are not clergy are very reluctant to provide spiritual leadership, even if they have all kinds of gifts and all kinds of leadership potential, because they're taught to think that spiritual authority um, resides exclusively in the clergy. And so I, I'm wondering what you find helpful in in um, encouraging people to embrace a more robust sense of how God is calling and gifting each of us for ministry. Such a great noticing in question. And I think every part of our system of the institutional church kind of sets us up for this idea of abdicating our own sense of our gifts and spirituality and, and theology. Like the fact that, you know, we have me, I'm a theologian. No way. I don't know those things. And meanwhile, we have all these brilliant people in our midst who in their daily life are totally doing ministry, but they would never call it ministry um, because that ordained person who has the credentials and has gone to seminary is kind of the expert and it's intimidating to even, even speak the language. Um, and so I think part of that is even how we talk about theology, how we relate, um, our faith stories to everyday life, um, to help provide opportunity for people to make those connections, um, in sitting and sharing stories and realizing the ways they are called, um, they're already doing diaconal things. They're already doing the priestly acts of reconciliation, the pastoral care um, for their neighbors or for their children. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about and making that connection so that it's not just, it's not having to learn one more thing, but it's fully integrating ourselves into our faith and into our lives as followers of Jesus so that um, we have the language and it it feels more seamless where church isn't just something that happens on Sunday morning, but that, you know, people, the people that we are caring for and who are caring for us can feel Jesus and we see Jesus in them. And the more we live that way and model that, the more I think people then come to church being willing to share those experiences and be nourished to go back out and continue to do that. So it, I think we talk about it a lot in our sermons. Um, we make time during coffee hour, during adult forums. We're just very adamant about making that connection and continuing to teach and form people as disciples in that way. Um, mm -hmm. So that it starts to become our language and our the way that we see ourselves. I would say at this point, you know, after doing it for 30 years, it's part of our DNA in Northern Michigan to the point that people come from all over the country and really all over the world. And lots of this candidate, Canadian visitors come um, to learn about an experience. And we host two visitors weekends a oh. year um, because it is just such a different way we've learned to be. Yeah, I, uh, this is so intriguing to me. I, I I think, you know, underlying what you were just saying really is a, a broader understanding of ministry that we really have to understand, we really have to educate people about what ministry really is, because it's so easy for people to conflate ministry with the work of clergy and not have a more biblical, robust understanding of ministry. I, I, following on that, you know, I think there's a tendency um, in small churches for for maybe that that can't afford any longer a, a full-time seminary educated clergy person to see this kind of approach to ministry as sort of less than. 
And I mean, how, how do you push back against the idea that this, this isn't a reluctant uh, concession to necessity? This is a life-giving way of being. Yes. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I feel like this is this is what I'm preaching all the time. Um, I recently was in the Diocese of North Dakota, where they are looking at more collaborative ways of being, um, given their remoteness and their smallness. Um, and one of my friends who had invited me there said, you know, there is kind of this worry, like, are we going to have to be like Northern Michigan? And I thought, Aw, that makes me sad. Like, I love being part of Northern Michigan, but it is this sense of deficiency because we have been so obsessed with numbers. We've been so obsessed with our budgets, with the number of people in the pews, with being able to afford our buildings. Just our whole kind of business of being church has been so wrapped up in this real Western kind of capital consumerist um, transactional institutional, way. Institutional, yeah. you know, even the language we use, the congregants kind of congregate around the presider who presides on behalf half of the people, how people are set up. I mean, it's, it, it, and so then when you don't have that and you see others who do and who seem to be thriving, who do have, you know, the care and attention of this one paid person, it is very easy to feel, um, to feel less than. Um, and we talk about, you know, we talk about smallness in those ways a lot to say, you know, that someone is small and meager, small and puny. And instead we say, oh, we're small and mighty. We're small and we have such a big impact. Um, but I will say the way of being for clergy in particular is so liberating and freeing in terms of the wellness of our clergy to have a team of folks that you're working with who take responsibility for their ministry and know their gifts. And then to allow me to know and use my gifts without having to overfunction in those ways that I'm not good at. There are certain things that I'm just one person. There are things I'm not great at, obviously, um, that someone else does have the gifts for. And when we really believe that um, and and step into those gifts, we are able to retain and um, care for our clergy much more. I, I am curious to know how this ministry, I, I can imagine this ministry model uh, in a small congregation that may not be able to have a, a paid person present all the time. But I understand it also is used in, in congregations that may have one or more paid clergy person pre- persons present. How does it work in that situation? Yeah, I would love to see this happening more, actually, to be honest with you, because I think it's a awesome setup. Um, The cathedral, the Episcopal Cathedral in the Diocese of Minnesota in Minneapolis has this model. Mm -hmm. So they have a dean and they also have um, some other paid clergy, actually. It's a a big cathedral, so they have a big staff. They also have a ministry team and they have folks who have been um, trained and formed and serve alongside And I think, especially in a larger system, when you have multiple services, you have many different ministries going on, um, having a team that's been commissioned to really own their ministry and to be also seen by the rest of the community as having some, um, it's not even about authority. I think it's just about um, 
honoring and um, it's again that covenant, this way of being together that you know that this group of people are going to show up, that they're going to be there, that they're going to be someone you could talk to. I I'm personally think it takes a village to care for all of us, not just children. And I think the exciting thing about mutual ministry is that there still is that place for paid professional seminary trained, um, you know, experienced wise folks. It's just mm -hmm. a different type of role, but we certainly have lots of positions in our small diocese. Um, and the way that we're able to fund that is that our local communities all contribute 40% of their net operating income into one pool. So it's very early church model where yeah. we put our resources into one bucket and then everybody gets the same care. So what that means for us is we may have places that have big endowments from like the iron ore days, you know, where they were booming towns that are now very small and they have millions of dollars in their endowment. Well, their 40% is going to be higher than a small town that doesn't have that kind of endowment, but they all receive the same care. And so that was a shift for us to say, just because one community maybe has more money, they don't necessarily deserve a better, um, pastoral presence or more pastoral presence, but if we truly are the body of Christ, then when we, you know, put in together, when we all share, everyone can be cared for. And I think I, you know, I think that was the biggest shift for this diocese. Those 30 years ago, mm -hmm. that was probably a very hard ask for people to really the go in on. It also means that our paid clergy are all paid the same amount. And so there isn't a competitive kind of, oh, this position is better than that position or is paid more or is worth more if you work at this church. That it took away that hierarchy as well. Wow, that, that's just so fascinating to me. So it's not just shared ministry within the congregation, it's shared ministry among all the churches of, of the diocese. I mean, what, what a brilliant, what a brilliant thing. Uh, I want to ask um, uh, just a couple more questions. One is, we've touched on the subject of language a couple of times, and I am so aware of the fact that, you know, say with the feminist movement in the 1970s and 80s, we began to understand how our language was reinforcing patriarchy. And uh, I think in a similar way, my ears are very attuned to how the language of ministry reinforces clericalism. You know, so a word like lay, which in scripture means people of God, has come in common usage to mean, you know, amateur or inexpert or common or secular as opposed to spiritual. And the whole language of pa pastoral identity is built around the metaphor of shepherding and sheep, which I, I find kind of disempowering. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I wondered if, um, you know, how, how do we learn to talk about ministries in ways that promote some more inclusive practice of ministry? I was very aware in reading your materials that you were avoiding certain terms. And so I, I just wanted to ask about that. <laughs> yeah, we are very careful about that. We don't use the L word very much. Yeah, I noticed there. that. <laughs> um, and so we say whether folks are ordained or not ordained. It's interesting. We also, we just gathered for our diocesan convention and you really wouldn't know who is or isn't ordained. They don't have colored name tags like they do in my <laughs> No, you don't receive different folders. We don't even vote by orders. We changed our canons and our rules to say, come on, if we really take this priesthood of all believers, if we really take the ministry of all the baptized seriously, then does it make 
a difference. And certainly there are places where, you know, for skill sets, it is helpful to gather everyone who preaches to do some extra training on preaching or everyone who's a worship leader. But a worship leader for a Sunday morning without a priest present also needs to learn, you know, holding their body presence and voice and all of those things. And so why don't we gather instead of clergy conferences? Why aren't we gathering for formation with all of us who are engaged in ministry. And so we've made those shifts, but, you know, even the word rector, which means ruler in Latin, I mean, it's, it's so steeped in this language, how we do bulletins. If you look at like at the back of a service bulletin, who gets a title, it would probably be the Reverend Canon, Lydia Kelsey Buckland, and then Anne, you know, like that be like, you have any less worth than I do. Right. And so we don't say that. And, and, you know, I have friends, especially friends of color, women of color in particular, who have said, I've worked very hard for this title. I need the respect of this title. And I get that. And I'm not saying get rid of all the titles, but if we're going to use titles for some of us, let's use titles for all of us. And that also means then figuring out what titles people deserve. So we might have doctors in our midst. We might have judges who would get the very honorable or, you know, but so Let's be intentional about how we use our language um, because it does make a difference. Even the possessive pronouns of my church, my congregation, or if someone, you know, in the, right, right. In the Episcopal church, if there isn't a priest, say a priest um, moves on, we might say, oh, this church has a vacancy. There's a vacancy in this church. Well, the church isn't vacant. It's still filled with all of these people who are engaged in ministry, who are the members of the church, vacant because of that one person. Um, that's silly. That's It's just not true. You know, <laughs> this, it's uh, such a liminal time uh, when so many of our inherited paradigms of ministry are proving um you know, inadequate or unsustainable. And I think all of us are just not knowing what the future is going to bring in terms of our congregations and in terms of our systems. And I just wondered, you know, how do you see this idea of mutual ministry unfolding as the church is moving forward into such a such a different uh, time, uh, you know, when our institutional models of church art seem to be waning? I sure hope it's embraced um, and in a way that where it's not seen as a, oh gosh, I guess we have to do this because we have no other option, but truly as kind of where the spirit is leading us, we have sustained this model through the pandemic for 30 years. I don't know that we would still be a diocese. If we look at those definitions of sustainability, viability, standing on our own, there are still people in the wider church who say, oh, that diocese of Northern Michigan should just get merged with another diocese because they're just too small to even be viable. And I can tell you for folks who live here and are part of the life and ministry we are viable. We are vital. Um, their ministry is making a difference with Feeding America and with local schools and with, I mean, countless ways. And we aren't a burden to anyone else just by existing. Um, and so to help people kind of believe it's, I think the self-esteem of our church communities right now is severely lacking. And so a lot of my job is to go around and love people into, um, seeing just looking in the mirror. I mean, it's, it's just walking alongside and companioning and saying, you've got this. You don't need me to empower you. The spirit has given you what you need and you should be proud of what you're doing. Um, And through this liminal space, 
I hope that we're able to help support communities to claim that rather than to throw in the towel and say, oh, we're down to only 15 people, I guess we're over. Um, but that also means making a shift of, away from, we always say God gives us everything we need to do exactly what God's calling us to do. Um, but that involves listening to what God's calling us to do. And, and it may not be everything, right? It's yeah. not everything. And it's yeah. not the things we used to do. And, right. see, and that's hard for some of our generations who go, we used to have yes. a choir and we used to have this and we, you know, what about the Sunday school? And to say, well, we can't do those things. Yeah. But what is that? What are the gifts? What are the needs of the community? How do we match those up? And how do we make an impact with what it is that we've been given to do? And then you kind of see new life start to emerge. Um, and sometimes it means sharing our building in more exciting ways, make, do, taking on some entrepreneurial um, mm -hmm. opportunities. Um, but I do think that there, there is a lot we can be doing when we believe in ourselves um, in this time of kind of rediscovery. To me, it's an exciting time because we can reimagine oh. who well, we are. It is an exciting time. And I, you know, I, I so often, you know, pick up on these sentiments of the idea of less than full-time clergy or, you know, shared models of ministry, like you're talking about, that it's seen as a sign of decline. It's seen as, you know, in a, a, taking away the authority of the clergy when it, when what I think it is, is God's spirit at work to renew the church. <laughs> and, and you have attested to that in wonderfully powerful ways um, uh, today. I, I'm so grateful for you sharing and uh, really grateful for the, the model and the witness of the work that you're doing. I, I think I'm going to have to pay a visit to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan soon because it sounds so very, very exciting. Please uh, come. Yes. So, so thank you, Lydia. Thank you for the work that you're doing and for the conversation today. Thanks, Anne. It was a true blessing on my part. Thanks for joining us for Leading Ideas Talks. Please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos.